second Sunday of January, we do what we call our family meeting. We're going to do that where we focus on one of our values. Usually we step away from the lectionary. But this, this next week, we're going to talk about being focused on Jesus, as, which is one of our values. So we're going to stay right with some of the I am's. You'll see that um, next week. But, but from now until Lent, we'll look each week at these statements that Jesus makes all throughout the book of John, where he says, I am this. Uh, and we're going to start today in John chapter 6, which is the first one that we see. John's taken us, by the time we get here, you'll hear that if you come tonight, through a lot of stories by the time we get to chapter 6, Jesus has called the disciples. He's done that very Baptist thing of turning water into wine. Um, that's why we skipped over that one. We don't want to read that one. He's, he's done a cleansing of the temple where he drove people out. Nicodemus, who's like one of the chief leaders of the Jewish people, has come to see him under the cover of darkness to ask him questions. And, and what you begin to realize as you read through John is that John isn't so tied to like a chronology of events. It's not like he's saying this happened and this happened and this happened and then this happened. He's, he's presenting who Jesus is, and he's using all these stories from the life of Jesus to communicate that. Last week we saw, he, he started by saying, the word was made flesh and we beheld his glory. And now his whole book, the whole gospel of John is trying to show you who that is. His whole purpose, he says at the end of the book in John 20, Verse 30 and 31, it says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's what John's trying to do. And so instead of doing it all, we're going to look at these I am statements of what Jesus says about himself and the ones that John chooses to share. We're going to start in John chapter 6 with verse 25. And read through verse 59. John 6, 25, down to 59. When they found him, Jesus, on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. And so they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you've seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. 
At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up at the last day. It's written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here's the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. And then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as a living father sent me, and I live because of the father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died. But he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Now Jesus, (laughs) sometimes you read passages that you've read before and you just realize, wow. I mean, he said, you're going to eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's, that's an interesting topic to talk about there. And Jesus says what he says for a reason. He says it in a very specific time and place, and it's important to get the context around what's happening so that you can see that what the people are doing when they come to Jesus on this day, when they say, well, how did you get here? When did you get here? What they're really doing is doing what we so many times do. They're pursuing Jesus on our terms. The context is important. Jesus has just fed, at the beginning of the chapter, 5,000 men and all their wives and children with five loaves and two fish. Pretty good deal. He he spread all that and fed this huge crowd. And then the people saw the disciples go and get into the only boat that was there belonging to them and go across the lake, and Jesus wasn't with them. And so they looked for Jesus everywhere. It says, in fact, other passages say they they wanted to make him a king by force. They're looking for him everywhere. They can't find him. They realize he didn't go in the boat, but, but, but they go looking for him, and they go around the lake and get to Capernaum, just like we often do. We pursue Jesus, but we do it. They're doing it for their own ends, for their own reasons. And in the same way, we go looking for Jesus to get what we want. And the question is, I mean, I don't think we want to do that. Nobody wants to use Jesus just for what we want, do we? So how can we know if we're doing that? And, and why do I say that's what they're doing in the text? Well, there's, there's three very specific things that happen that show that I think it's what they're doing. They're pursuing him for what they want. And it's also guidelines for us to realize if that's why we're pursuing Jesus, just for what we want. The first is they start by asking surface questions. Verse 22. Er, <coughs> excuse me. Verse 25. Oh, let me read 22 to 24. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake 
realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. And then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten bread after the Lord had given thanks. And once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. He's gone and they don't know how he got gone. Where did he go? We don't know. So they jump in these boats, they get to Capernaum, and the first question they ask is, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now, let's be honest here. In the scope of what Jesus has come to do, that is not a very important question. It's a very surface, when did you get here? Right? One of the kids' questions in the, or the kids' question in the sermon outline, the questions that we ask is, if you could ask God what one question, if you could ask God any one question, what would that question be? I guarantee you it wouldn't be something like that. Because that's just like, what time did you get here? How'd you get here? The question's more about their own curiosity. Maybe, I mean, I I like to imagine a lot of things. I can see them in the boat going the way over and they're arguing. He's not going to be there. He didn't leave. Oh, yes, he is. And when they get there, somebody's like, aha, he's here. When did you get here, Jesus? Because they want to go back to their buddy and say, I told you, I told you he was here. Maybe, maybe after the shock of feeding the 5,000, it was a bit awkward. This, who is this guy? And we don't really know what to ask next. We've seen something so amazing, we don't really know what to ask. They had wanted him to be a king, but, but he withdrew from them, it says, and wouldn't let them make him the king. So it, this was a question, when did you get here? That's kind of awkward, it's kind of surfacy. it's a way of keeping it safe. And I think we do the same thing too. Much of our discussion around Jesus can be on the surface. You see, that question is all about Jesus and nothing about them and and the implications of Jesus for them. It's a trivial question that brings them into contact with Jesus but doesn't actually accomplish anything. we, We make our relationship with Jesus about our doctrinal ideas or our denominations or maybe we argue over which political ideology Jesus would embrace, what kind of car he would drive, all those kind of things. We look for ways to make the conversations about him alone and not about us. When did you get here, Jesus? We ask surface questions that keep him at a distance. I mean, the question would be, who are you, Jesus? You're the guy that, or why don't you want to be king? We want to make you a king. But they don't ask that. They ask a really simple surface question. Came across a quote years ago, in fact, right after I came here, by a guy named Tim Hansel. I just think it's a profound quote. He says, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black person or pick crops with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. You see, one of the ways we can realize if we're approaching Jesus on our terms instead of on his terms is that we want just a little. We want to keep it on the surface. A second thing I see here is that they're searching for a system. They, they launch off of something that he says. He says, you know, when did you get here? And he doesn't, he doesn't say, oh, 1130. He doesn't answer their question, right? He jumps right into something else. And he says, you guys are just looking for me because you ate the bread and you you just want another free lunch. Stop working for food that spoils, but work for things that matter. 
And so they ask in verse 28, well, what must we do to do the works that God requires? They jump to another question, but they're looking. They, they say, spell it out, Jesus. If you, if you want us to do something, just make it clear. What are the requirements? How do we make this God thing work for us? That's what they're asking. What, what do we have to do to do enough to make God happy? Spell it out. What do we need to do to earn our way? How do we make this religion work? How do we keep God content with us so that our lives can go okay? I think we do this too. We want to make our faith work for us. Uh, Do I need to pray more? Do I need to read more? Do I need to give more? Should I come tonight to that public reading thing? Maybe that would work. Maybe that'll help me. Go to church more. And what, what I want us to see is all those things that we ask are on our terms. They're about getting God to do something for us. They're way more about us than they are about God. We're trying to work a system to make things happen. Let me tell you a little secret to the spiritual life, at least one that I've learned. It's not a system that you work. It's really not. It's a relationship that you live in, and it's daily. It's, it's not just a one-time, this is what you do, this is the system. As long as you do these things, things are going to go okay for you. It's a relationship day by day by day that's very often surprising and confusing. And Jesus says the work of God is to believe in me and the one he sent. We'll, we'll get back to that in a minute. But the third thing we do when we pursue God on our own terms is what we see in verse 30 and 31. Jesus says, believe, that's the work of God. And then they say, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate manna in the desert. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. See, the third thing we do, if it's only surface, if we're, if we're coming at Jesus on our terms, is we end up demanding proof by production. God, do something. Give me something that can prove to me that I should believe in you. You want us to believe They say to Jesus, then prove it. I'm going to show you a 35-second movie clip, and I I hesitate because every time a pastor shows a movie clip, everybody thinks it's a blanket endorsement. This is a movie that came out years ago. The name of the movie is Bruce Almighty. Uh, And it's it's about a newscast. It's obviously a fiction story. It's not based on a true story. It's quite profound, actually. If you'll watch it with an open mind, you would be amazed what you will learn about God and the way people interact with him or think about him. But this this main character, his name is Bruce Nolan. He's a TV field reporter. He desperately wants to be the anchor of the evening news. And he gets passed over for the promotion, and he's quite angry about it, makes a big scene, ends up getting fired from his job, and, and the whole day from there just goes down the tubes. He has... Catastrophe after catastrophe after catastrophe. When you think it can't get any worse, it still gets worse. And just before our scene, he's driving home in his car and he's praying and he says, God, give me a sign. And there's a big roadside sign that says, caution ahead. And he's like, God, give me a sign. Just let me know. Give me some kind of sign. And this big truck pulls in front of him with all kinds of signs. Stop. Danger ahead. Doesn't matter. He misses it. 
he, he gets mad at the truck for pulling out in front of him. He whips around it, and then he sees hanging from his rearview mirror his prayer beads, I guess, from growing up Catholic, his rosary, whatever. He grabs it in his hand, and he says, okay, I'll do this your way. And when he's starting to pray, he drops it on the floor. As he drops it on the floor, he looks down and runs into a light post. Everything is just the worst. And we pick up the clip with him being angry at God. Right? The only one around here not doing his job is you, he says. You're the one who should be fired. And I think sometimes, while we're not that dramatic, we go to God demanding proof. If you're God, do it. Do something. We bargain. We want it done our way. We can't seem to see beyond. He can't in this moment see beyond himself. And actually the story of the whole movie is he begins to realize that there's a lot more going on in the world than what's just affecting him. It's quite, a, quite an epiphany, to use a word, that's relevant today. He's saying, show me, make it work for me. And I think we do the same things, all of those things, these surface questions where we talk about religion and theology, but never Am I living more like Jesus? What is he calling me to surrender to him today? We, we work the system. I do, I do everything I need to do. I show up at church. I give my offering. I, and then we demand proof. Say, God, you've got to show up here. Where are you? What are you doing? See, those, those are all signs that we're making this relationship with Jesus way more about us than about him. And Jesus, in fine form, challenges that. Right? You can see it when you look at the responses of Jesus through this whole passage. When they finally encounter him, he forces them to go on another journey. They've gone on this journey to find him, and he says, okay, you've come here, now let's, let's look inside. Let's go on an inward journey and talk about some things. So coming to terms with the fact that you don't need to pursue me on your terms, he says, but on my terms. See, they think they know what they're looking for. They think they have the ability to discern what it is that they need. They think they understand God to some degree. And Jesus is going to challenge everything they think. If you watch him, he does something he's famous for. He he starts with a redirection of every question. When did you get here? Like I said, he didn't say, well, just this morning. He doesn't even acknowledge their question. He cuts right to the chase, to the motives for their search. He says, you guys don't even care when I got here. You're looking for me because you want your stomachs full. You want another free lunch. Not because of the miracles, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. You guys are pursuing me on your terms. You're expending effort to get another free lunch. And then he makes a statement that implicitly asks them a question. It's not a, you don't see a question mark in his statement. But it does question them. He says, don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. What he implicitly asks you that is, what are you actually living for? What are you working for? What are you giving your time to? What is it that you're pursuing? Are you looking deeper in life than your next meal or the next thing that you think you need? What are you working for? And that inspires another question which we saw. Well, okay, Jesus, you want us to work for something. What what kind of works should we do to do the works that God requires? And once again, he redirects. The work of God is to believe 
in the one he has sent. Now, this is a hard one for us, to believe. What does that actually mean? Like, we, to believe in Jesus. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? The, the, the Greek word is pistuo. And it literally means to entrust yourself to. The problem with us is we can believe and it just be a mental kind of cognitive assent. I can believe that two plus two equals four and it doesn't cost me anything at all. There's no risk in me saying I believe this because I'm not, I'm not actually entrusting myself to that. I, I've used the example before, but there's a couple of pictures that are going to come up. This is a guy rock climbing. He's getting ready to go rock climbing. And he has the rope that he uses. And most of you know that rope. Well, some of you will know. You'll know after this. The rope will be tested to usually about 2,000 pounds strength. So if you're hanging off that rope, I used to lead groups, and I would ask the kids in my group, anybody here weigh over 2,000 pounds? Nobody ever did. So I said, you're safe. You know, you can... That is what I'm talking about, the belief, the mental ascent. I believe this rope can hold over 200 pounds. But the Greek word pistuo is way more like this picture, Right? I believe this rope can hold 200 pounds because I'm hanging on it, right? It's actually entrusting yourself. So when he says the work of God is to believe in me, the one he has sent, he's saying the work of God is actually to entrust yourself to me, to completely give yourself over, to put your full weight on. It's not on your terms. It's not you deciding what you're going to believe about me. It's you completely entrusting yourself to me. And then the final question is, they say, okay, well, then what sign are you going to do so that we can believe? And this is where Jesus really challenges all their biblical interpretation. Because the idea for the Jews is that the Messiah is going to be a new and improved Moses. He's a better Moses than the Moses that there was before. He's he's coming to be the new Moses, the one that's going to set his people free. And they even say, you know, Moses, as it's written, he gave them bread to eat in in the wilderness. But Jesus says it wasn't Moses that gave them bread. It was God that gave them bread. And now he's given you the true bread, and he says, I am the bread of life. And this is where Jesus really starts messing with them because he starts challenging their expected categories, the way they think about things. He challenges the way they understand what they're even talking about. They've been talking about manna. They've been talking about bread. They've been talking about what they can do for God. And all of a sudden, he moves from this literal to this kind of symbolic understanding of what he's saying. They want to say, Moses gave physical bread as an example of power. What are you going to do? And he says, I am the bread of life doesn't fit with what they're thinking. He's saying, you don't do this on your terms. And, and that's, that's the point. See, they, they've, they've got this mentality. They're going down a path, and they have to reorient everything because he's changing the whole category. He's not talking about bread bread anymore. He's talking about himself. It's a whole different... It doesn't even match up. How do you compare a human being to bread? And this is where it gets difficult because God starts leading us down these pathways we haven't gone before. That's one of the things about Jesus on our terms. We kind of want Jesus to come along for the ride. We kind of want to take him with us and make, give us a better life. Come on, Jesus, you be, you're my buddy. You're the guy that's going to take care of me. You're going to give me help when I need it. And yet Jesus has this whole different journey planned. He changes the categories of what life is all about. He challenges our expectations and unsettles us. It says in verse 41, they began to grumble. (coughs) Who does this guy think he is? 
isn't this Joseph's son? We, we know his parents. How can he say he came down from heaven? I've known Joseph since Joseph was a little boy. See, he's, he's, he's working out of a whole different mindset, a whole different way. And, and how does he say he's the bread of life come down from heaven? We know who he is. Who does he think he is, they say. And you know what he says? I'm the bread of life. That's exactly who he thinks he is. Just doesn't really answer their question. It's a shift. He's saying, this is not your agenda, guys. Look at verse 43. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And then at the end, in verse 49 to 51, in the desert, your forefathers ate manna, and what good did it do them? They died. How many of them are still around? But if you guys will eat my flesh... And drink my blood. Once again, they don't get that. They've never, I mean, it doesn't make sense to them. He says, you, you, you'll, live, you'll have eternal life. You won't die. That's where he really blows their mind because he starts talking about the offering of himself. They don't, they don't have any conceptual groundwork to hold that. It's just shifting of the categories. Because put on, how many, none of you are maybe Jewish, but put on your Jewish mindset for a minute. All throughout the Old Testament, they're told not to eat meat of the animals with blood in it. Certain meats are unclean. And now you've got the Jewish rabbi saying, you're going to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Is it, I mean, it's, it's the weirdest thing. It's like you think he's smoking something. What's he talking about? It's, it's so out of the realm of possibility. They just cannot grasp it. He says, I'm going to give you my flesh to eat. How can we eat a man's flesh? How can that be anything but, but heresy? Crazy talk. Just listen to his words as if you've never heard them before. Imagine you're, you've grown up in a Jewish household. You're faithful. You, 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 you've tried to keep the law. Your parents have taught you. And listen to verse 53 to 58. I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He's changing what they've even thought about as bread. He says, I'm giving you myself for your nourishment. I am the bread of life. Now, remember last week how we said John's got this big picture, right? He's, he started by saying, not, not here's a baby in a manger. He started by saying, in the beginning was the word, and we beheld him. We saw his glory, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh, lived for a while among us. It's bigger. It's cosmic. It's stronger than anything. It's stronger than death is what John's saying. And he's, Jesus is saying, now, if you will just eat this bread, you'll never die. You'll live forever. And if you want it, he says, you need me. You need to take me into your very self and feed on me. It's, it's so hard for them to grasp because nobody's ever talked like this before. Especially nobody that's just fed 5,000 plus the day before and they've seen it happen. You see, 
This is a good passage for us to start 2020 because the calling is to come and to believe. See, it's the first Sunday of a new year, a time when we all reflect back on the past year. I've been interesting to see people posting online saying, 2019, you weren't very much of a friend to me. <laughs> but I'm looking forward to maybe better in 2020. People are looking back and looking forward. So it's, it's good for us to do that. In Psalm 90, verse 12 says, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We should think about how we're living, how we've lived, what's gone in the past, what we're looking forward to the, the coming year, and the calling that we have in relation to the bread of life, we see in verse 35. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me, once again, entrusts himself to me, will never be thirsty. Now, that means some things will change. It means it's not going to happen on our terms. It also means this daily calling, one that might change our expectations of what God might do in the next year. If you guys had, if you could write down your list for what you want God to do in the next year, I'm sure you all would have it. Fix this situation, solve this problem, help me with this. That may not be on God's agenda at all. But the, the point is, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Will you come to me first? And will you entrust yourself to me? That's the way we feed on him. If we're going to do that, there's, there's a few things that it will involve. First, it will involve unlearning and relearning. The hardest part about teaching anybody anything is, first of all, getting them to realize that they don't already know it. How many of you have had conversations with your children, preteen and teen, and you say something, and the kid says, I know, Mom. I know, Dad. Because they know it all, right? Do you guys know it all? You did at one point. The older you get, right? I'm looking at somebody. I know, I know, I know, I know. The hardest point of teaching anybody anything is to get them to realize, first of all, that they don't know. Remember last week I showed you that basketball player, Zion Williamson, that did the amazing dunk? What's fascinating, I had to come back to basketball just a little bit. He, he was the highest, probably the highest recruited college player for the NBA ever. And he gets into the NBA, he hasn't even really played a game because he hurt his knee. And what they're finding out is he is, I mean, he's, he's quite a, Angela used to not be happy, but I said he's a freak of nature because he's 680, weighs 280 pounds. He can jump 45 inches straight up in the air and he's incredibly quick. Like he's, he's, he's almost superhuman in some ways, but what they've realized, this, the New Orleans Pelicans NBA team drafted him. He got hurt right away, and they've realized that he's so physically strong and fast that his body can't handle the forces that he can generate. And that's why he hurt his knee. In college one time, he planted his foot, and he planted it so hard that it actually blew out his shoe. Because he's so strong and so fast. And so the New Orleans Pelicans, guess what they're doing? I read an article on it this week. They're reteaching him how to walk and how to run to work better with his phys physical makeup. How do you reteach a 19-year-old how to walk? He's been walking his whole life. The hard part is he's had to realize I, the way I've been doing this is not the best thing for me. And, and part of the spiritual journey... <laughs> Sometimes the hardest part of coming to Jesus and actually entrusting ourselves to him is actually admitting that maybe we don't know what's best for us. 
to acknowledge that. To entrust yourself to him, to feed on his flesh means you come to him and you believe that the way he's leading you is actually the best, even if it doesn't make sense to you. Sometimes we have to unlearn before we relearn. Peter's always a great example, right? In the the book of Mark, what about you, Jesus? Asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you're the Messiah. Peter has the right answer. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter knew that Jesus was the Messiah. He just didn't have the right definition of Messiah. And first, Peter had to admit that what he thought the Messiah was, he had to unlearn that before he could learn who Jesus actually was. It's counterintuitive, but it's actually quite freeing. And I I say this cautiously, but it's okay to doubt yourself a little bit in matters of faith. It's okay to realize maybe I don't have this all figured out. You're not doubting that God's got it all figured out. You're doubting that you've got it all figured out. You're doubting that you understand. Sometimes that's the first step in unlearning so that we can relearn. To reorient ourselves around Jesus instead of trying to make Jesus fit into what we think he should do. If you do that, it's going to mean fewer answers and more trust. They come demanding the answers that they want. When did you get here What do we need to do to do the work that God requires? And what are you going to do so that we can believe? They come demanding answers, and Jesus doesn't answer any of those questions. He challenges everything they thought they knew or what they thought they needed to know. And they couldn't stand it. Verse 41, who does this guy think he is? He's he's undermining everything. They, They don't have the answers. That psalm that I read, Psalm 89, it's in our lectionary for this week and next week. You should really read that psalm. The first 37 verses of the psalm are all about the goodness of God and how he chose David and he set up this kingdom and he promised to be faithful forever to David. and, And it's a beautiful, powerful psalm on, yes, God, you're the one. You're the one we trust. And then in verse 38, it all turns. And the psalmist says, but you've rejected us. You, you're not keeping any of these promises. And from verse 38 till the end of the chapter, the next to the last verse of the chapter, he says, you, you made all these promises, and look, this has happened, and this has happened, and this has happened. And at the very end of the psalm, what he actually says, he just, he says, how long, how long? Remember, O Lord, how your servant's been mocked. And then the last verse just says, praise be to the Lord forever, amen and amen. And you know what that is? The psalmist, the guy who wrote that, He doesn't have any answers because he says, you promised all this stuff and now none of it's come true. I don't have any answers for that, but I'm going to trust. If you begin to unlearn and relearn, you're going to have fewer answers and you're going to need more trust. And there's a theological term for that. You may have heard it before. It's called faith, right? Where we believe in things that we don't understand or see because God has promised Once again, Peter, John 13, Jesus is washing their disciples. He comes to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus said, 
you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. That, I've come back to that verse so many times. It, it doesn't mean I'll even understand here what God's doing. I may not understand until I meet Jesus face to face, what he's doing in my life. Fewer answers, more trust. It's the only way that we can move from controlling to consuming. See, that's why we come to the table. Do we understand this bread and juice ritual that we do? Do we get it? Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. In Mark 14, it says, when they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body. Now, if you come here on your terms, trying to make God work for you, you'll go away frustrated. But if you can come to him and entrust yourself to him, allowing yourself to be challenged, to unlearn, to relearn, realizing that trust is way more powerful than answers. It really is. Trust will get you through things that answers don't get you through. If you can do that in the coming year, you'll, you'll lessen your attempt to control God and you'll increase your consumption of who God actually is. You'll feed on this relationship that runs deeper than your doctrinal statement, that challenges you to the very center, that takes death and turns it into life. You know, if you keep reading after we finished, it says in verse 60, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And you know, when, when you come to a point where you can't figure it all out like they were, you have a choice. You can just walk away. But Simon Peter, again, down in verse 68 says, Lord, Jesus says, are you guys going to leave too? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, this is the same Simon Peter who later will be told, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> the same Simon Peter who said, don't wash my feet. And Jesus said, you'll get it later. You see, it's this whole process of learning to entrust ourselves to the God that we don't understand. Today, you could choose to walk away. You can say, I don't get it. It's not working for me. I came to Jesus because I thought it was going to make my life better and things have gotten harder. Or you can come to him and entrust yourself to believe like you're hanging off the edge of that cliff and to consume. That's your choice today as we come to the table. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you gave yourself for us. We, I think we would have been just as confused as everybody else if we heard you talk in that way. What does it mean to eat your flesh? What does it mean to drink your blood? What does it mean to consume you, to actually take you into us and be nourished by you? We don't have answers for that. We don't know what it looks like. We don't know what tomorrow looks like after we take communion today. But we ask that you would help us today to come to you and to believe and entrust ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.